the political leaders uh, were saying we need to get business up and going again, and therefore we need to relax those measures. Well, that has been the theme throughout, really for an entire year in the United States. And what has it led to? It's led to failure again on both counts, failure on the public health side, failure on the economic side. You need a fusion of good science and good political leadership for managing a host of health threats. And you also need to invest in public health infrastructure. We know what this looks like. It does have critical mass of science expertise. It is very well connected with decision makers and also has regional delivery capacity. Key to all of this is understanding that there is an exit. It's the idea that you can do something that will get us out of this that somehow got lost in this discussion. And, and, and no exit sharpens the conversation, right? If you say, look, if we do this, we can go back to a pre-COVID conditions. That would be much better. That's what really everyone wants. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And this week, we're zooming out from Arizona to gain a more global view of COVID-19. You're about to meet a complexity science physicist, an epidemiologist at the heart of a successful national COVID strategy, and an independent healthcare analyst who bridges international and U.S. perspectives. You've heard a lot on this podcast about policies and systems for mitigation. Today, the topic shifts to the strategy of elimination how other countries achieved it while the United States did not, along with thoughts as to why and what can be done next. As we head into that discussion, know this. Things are marginally improving in Arizona. We have backed away from leading the nation in terms of weekly average new COVID cases. However, it still boils down to this. In order to slow the spread, you've got to stay home as much as you can, wash up and mask up when you can't, and shrink your circle. It really, truly is that simple for reasons you'll learn more about in this episode. When we don't do these things, cases rise and more people die. When we do, cases fall and we save lives. Do your part, slow the spread, be COVID smart. There's a whole new perspective to learn about in this episode, so let's get to it. It's time to talk about the international picture of the pandemic, what we've seen in the world, and what can be learned from different countries' actions as of February 8, 2021. Today, we have three incredible guests. First, we'd love to welcome Yanir Baryam. He is the founding president of the New England Complex Systems Institute. He's an MIT-trained physicist, and he is one of the creators of complexity science. Yanir, how are you? I'm doing okay, though the world is not, so that's uh, what we're here to talk about. Also joining us today, he is a health economist and independent healthcare analyst over the last 22 years. Welcome, Joshua Cohen. Joshua, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being here. Finally, from New Zealand, Michael Baker. He is the professor of public health at the University of Otago, New Zealand. Michael, how are you, sir? Great to join you on this podcast. Thank you for being here. Yunir, can we start with you? I was kind of transfixed by this quote. As the connectivity of the world increases, past experience is not a good guide for future events. Yeah, that's what started me studying pandemics because we studied it and showed that as you had long range transportation, 
you actually go through a phase transition from local extinction to global extinction. So that was not a very good thing to discover. And basically it said that it wasn't going to happen smoothly. So we wouldn't have, you know, sort of larger and larger outbreaks. Instead, we were going to go from a circumstance where we could deal with what was happening to a circumstance where it would become potentially not addressable. But really, the assumption of the model was that we didn't change what we're doing. So the message really was, in the context of increasing global transportation, we had to really change our thinking about how we dealt with outbreaks. And that's really what I've been involved since. And I specifically, in that context, so this was an article 15 years ago, called out Ebola and SARS-like diseases. And so that was the unfortunately, uh, anticipation of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa that I was involved in, both high-level policy discussions and also learning about and understanding the -the on-the-ground effort in the communities that actually stopped the outbreak. And then, of course, with this, like Michael, I think he was involved in it earlier than me because I was focused on something else at the time, but January 26th, we came out with our first paper basically recommending what Michael actually did in New Zealand and and other countries that were successful. From your perspective, Yanir, given that you authored these types of analyses a decade ago, given that some countries listened and some countries didn't, why did that happen? The fact that people don't understand about outbreaks comes from the fact that people want to rely on local experience. In Asia, there was the SARS outbreak that people responded to and that gave a warning. In Africa, there have been many outbreaks that people learned from. And I think Michael Baker has specific experience looking at the global response to outbreaks, really focuses your attention differently than most people who are involved in public health around the world, where they're concerned about the issues that they have to address locally, And those are not the same as a global pandemic. Using that prior experience is not a good indicator of future events and the responses that are needed for it. So that's really the crucial nature of what we're experiencing. It's been hard for people to learn. So fortunately, the experience of New Zealand, Australia, Vietnam, Taiwan, and China has informed the global response, and hopefully it will increasingly inform what's happening in the world. And we see that there is some recognition that elimination, which was the successful strategy that was adopted in New Zealand and other places, is also applicable to Europe, the US, and other places. And that is becoming a global discourse that is shifting, and I hope that it will be adopted now that it is increasingly recognized that the approach that is being used in many places, which is living with a virus, we have to live with a virus, that's what many people say, is actually, first of all, not the case, and it is failing. It is failing to protect people, it is failing to prevent disease, severe disease, hospitalizations, deaths, and the long-term consequences of disability for people who survive the disease. The amazing thing about what Michael Baker did in New Zealand was how normal it sounds when he talks about it. What happened was 
the prime minister took it seriously, turned to the scientist, Michael Baker. They said, here are your choices. The prime minister said, this one is the best, executed on the plan that was presented, and they were successful. It all seems so appropriate and reasonable, and it worked. So, Michael, that brings us to you, doesn't it? Here's the weird part, though. Reading about your background and the way the early days played out for you, I read the quote that said, we had the plan that everyone has, the influenza pandemic plan of mitigation. And that's the one that countries around the world followed. And yet you saw something different very early on. Talk about how that came about. Yes, when big things happen, everyone kind of remembers where they were when they first heard about them. Um, you might have been um, in the shower listening to the radio or something, and you thought, actually, this is something I should be concerned about. And I think epidemiologists, I always sometimes say we are, we're paid to worry about things. And so we perhaps look a little bit further ahead. There was some light bulb moments for me, and I think obviously, like many people, in January, you could see that this was going to be a global pandemic, and there were very good epidemiologists saying that by the end of that month. And then, obviously, it's a bit depressing. By the end of February, we had that remarkable report from the World Health Organization. They had the joint mission to China, and they said China has stopped this pandemic in full flight in Wuhan, which really is almost unprecedented for a respiratory pandemic. And so that convinced me, and I, and I think probably others, that actually this was more like a SARS pandemic and much less like influenza, and it was containable. And then again, by mid-March, it was quite clear that we were getting the virus was becoming transmitted locally in New Zealand, that we didn't have the infrastructure, testing, contact tracing, to actually do a very targeted management of it to stamp it out. So I became a big advocate for an intense lockdown. And at the point where we had 100 cases and no deaths, we went into one of the world's most intense lockdowns for five weeks and then another two weeks with a less intense lockdown. And so essentially seven weeks of a stay-at-home order. And we basically emerged into a virus-free country. Of course, we'd done the other essential thing, which was to introduce quarantine at the borders. That also gave us time, of course, to get the testing capacity up and adapt the contact tracing system to stamp out cases if they occurred. So that combination has been, was successful. We weren't sure if it would work initially, and it's been sustainable now for almost a year. We've had some setbacks, some individual cases and a, a moderate-sized outbreak, but the system now can manage these with um, the testing contact tracing. So we don't, we don't think we'll need to go into lockdown again. And one of the interesting things is we've had less time under lockdown than virtually every other country in the OECD, far less than Sweden, which we sometimes, and early on people were saying, oh, we should follow Sweden with their liberal approach far less than the UK and even Australia. And it's simply, and people will summarize it with the go early, go hard approach. And I must admit, when I was thinking about this in March and did become probably the, I think, the loudest and most persistent advocate for this approach, and also wrote this up as an elimination strategy, 
I just thought the entire world would do this because the success in China was documented by the World Health Organization. They had the report on their website. I thought, well, the WHO will just lead this global response. It seems so obvious. And the remarkable thing for me, or one of many, is that almost a year later, the word elimination does not feature in the WHO's advice at all. I think there are reasons for this, but we have to remember now that elimination approaches or zero COVID is protecting about a quarter of the world's population. When, when we look at how countries are responding to the pandemic, the world is now really split into two major blocks. There are countries that have decided that they do not want to tolerate the virus, they're heading for a zero COVID approach. And that was really led by mainland China initially, but other countries have succeeded even better. I mean, Taiwan really started on this approach right at the beginning of last year with managing their borders and so on, and have had the best response in the world. And then the countries like New Zealand and Australia have really followed that Asian model in varying degrees. I mean, Australia has a, has a federal system also, and some of its states and territories took the same approach in New Zealand, an absolute zero COVID approach, and others were more open and they've actually done less well. So there is quite a bit of diversity even amongst countries that have ultimately succeeded. And then many countries in Asia are doing extremely well. And I think in many ways, one of the most spectacular examples is Vietnam. You know, a population of over 100 million densely packed cities, long complex land borders, have had long periods of no COVID-19 transmission whatsoever and have really protected their populations very well. But so have other Asian countries, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Mongolia, and also Singapore, Hong Kong. Casting the net a bit wider, South Korea and Japan have pursued different times, I think, probably a zero COVID approach, but then have probably drifted more into the, in the very tight suppression approach and have achieved low numbers. You could say there's an Asian Pacific model, which is very much in the elimination group. And then there is really the rest of the world, which has had varying degrees of mitigation, which is a very light touch through to suppression, which is much more assertive. And you see that particularly in places like Norway. Sweden, by comparison, has had that lighter touch, more the mitigation approach. And then other countries have probably oscillated a bit between mitigation and suppression. Like the UK started out thinking it would pursue what you could call a, a mitigation, even a, a herd immunity approach, just like, like Sweden. And this was for a different virus. This might have worked for influenza. It certainly does not work for COVID-19. And that model has been largely abandoned. I would just add that there are parts of other countries also including Atlantic Canada with four provinces of Canada, also the northern parts of Canada. And there are other places around the world, including provinces in other countries and other areas. Joshua? Yes, Professor Baker stole my thunder, uh, which is fine. Uh, he talked about the fact that there's a misconception, misconception around the trade-off between the economy and public health. Unfortunately, and I'm sure Professor Baker knows this, in the United States, there are many on both sides of the aisle who still believe in this trade-off. They still believe that if we do strict mitigation, we're going to ruin the economy. Of course, we didn't do strict mitigation ever. 
we didn't do an early approach to trying to stamp out the epidemic, what were we left with in the United States? Well, left with an inconsistent policy of half-baked mitigation measures uh, that were cyclical as well. As Professor Baker mentioned, you know, New Zealand, they went into strict lockdown, but they haven't gone into lockdown since. What has the United States done? It's gone into a semi-state of lockdown in a number of states in a cyclical, haphazard way. And of course, that is never going to be good for two things, public health, and on the other hand, for the economy. So we're left with really bad public health, if you will, and not just in terms of mortality. People focus on mortality, but people should also be talking about long COVID, the long haulers. People should also be talking about the fact that morbidity is something we don't even really know a lot about. I'm not an epidemiologist, but there are many people who've suffered from COVID, might not even be long haulers, but they have tremendous morbidity many months after COVID has struck them. So we have a public health issue, and we have an economic issue as well. And as Michael Baker mentioned, the countries that have done well, elimination or suppression, if you will, of the virus, Japan really hasn't followed an elimination strategy, but certainly has suppressed the virus. Well, Japan has done fairly well economically. Korea has done very well. Taiwan and Korea, Japan, sort of, they've not gone into a true recession. China has actually grown, as was mentioned. So it's very clear that there is no trade-off there. They have got the public health part right, and their economies are growing. And here in the United States, our economy is rebounding in a kind of a, a bumpy, haphazard way. It's not a structurally sound recovery by any stretch. And we're having to pour incredible resources, which I understand the federal government is doing that, we're having to pour incredible resources into our recovery. And in part, it has to do with the fact that we had such a bad epidemic here, such a bad outbreak, which, by the way, isn't contained by any stretch of the imagination. And I think... Part of the problem in the United States with people saying we can live with COVID is they figure, well, it hasn't affected me or it hasn't affected my family or they've only heard of someone being affected by COVID. So they live in a very alternate reality, if you will. It's not really affecting us. I hear that a lot in the United States, even though, of course, it is affecting us. Just look at the numbers. That approach is never going to be healthy as a country. You need to at least show some solidarity, if you will. Even if it hasn't affected you or your family, it's certainly affected many, many people. And as a nation, we need to approach it that way. Quite frankly, I'm an economist. I think we need to approach the economy that way too. We don't want to just support one sector or two sectors at the expense of another sector. We need a structural recovery in which all sectors service, manufacturing, etc. And the only way to do that, really the only way, is to get public health under control, get the virus under control, improve our public health, and so that people aren't worried, uncertain, not knowing what tomorrow will bring, etc. Yanir, I believe that you are one of the co-founders, if not the originator, of endcoronavirus.org. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. 
this podcast originates in Arizona, there is a distinction on your website that Arizona is the only state in the United States to have its own page. Why is that? So actually, there is a positive reason for that, because we have a community effort in Tucson in particular, but it's growing now also in Phoenix. And the community effort is to galvanize the community to build both the services that help for members of the community, but also to advance the discussion of a zero COVID elimination strategy. And this has been going on for a while. We always would like it to happen faster than it does. But the basic idea goes back to something that we can recognize as being one of the barriers to implementation of elimination, which is people are worried about the imposition of travel restrictions. If you understand that you can impose travel restrictions, then every town every neighborhood, surely any city, can take upon itself to get to elimination. And that is what we can advocate for with the recognition that if we allow essential service travel, essential travel, commuters that are essential workers, that we can provide guidelines and protect communities so that they can take upon themselves the responsibility to get to zero and to stay there. Now, just like in other places in the world that have been successful, there's always a risk. It's like we have a policy in the U.S. of a zero fire policy. We do not tolerate ongoing house fires and city fires and so on, and we put them out. So similarly with COVID, we should have a zero COVID policy. It doesn't mean that we won't have new outbreaks as there have been in New Zealand and other places, but having that as a strategy, then guides are thinking instead of saying, well, you know, if you get rid of it, there'll be another outbreak. Well, sure, there'll be another outbreak, but that doesn't mean that you won't be successful most of the time at living the life that we want to live with the freedoms that we want to have and the opportunities of business and economy that we all would like to restore. Michael, do you look at the United States and wonder what possibly it could be about the social and the political that mixes so badly to make it nearly impossible for this country to wrap its arms around a pandemic like COVID-19? Yes. I mean, it has astounded me, not just the United States, but actually the Western world has had a really terrible, disastrous failure of risk assessment and risk management. And in New Zealand, I've always looked to the US CDC as really one of the absolute centres of excellence for public health and related sciences, and also to the Public Health England and the European Centres for Disease Control, but particularly the US CDC, and I've been there several times over the years and collaborated closely with them, fantastic depth of knowledge, wonderful people, and they have been absent in this pandemic in terms of leadership. WHO has not provided great guidance either. It was almost like the entire Western world, not only did they see this as influenza and acted and advised accordingly, but actually seemed quite, uh, I would say, it was described as complacent exceptionalism, that somehow they could sit back and that this pandemic would not behave in the Western world as it was behaving in Asia. 
So in the end, we followed Asia in terms of our response and only at the last possible moment because we were really taking our our leadership from the Western world as we've usually done. And so then I, I think that really does explain the problems for many countries. The US, UK, Europe have, I think, started with a very poor, incomplete assessment of this pandemic. And most of the problems have flowed from that in terms of how to manage it. And so in New Zealand, the critical things were, I think, this fusion of good science, so the strategy, and good political leadership that the government listened to scientists. But, you know, it was a near thing. I think I can see a problem with strategy and with leadership in many countries. Some countries, of course, have had strong leadership, but seem to have got the science wrong early on. And it's still a mystery to me why uh, the science, science leadership uh, was not looking at what had happened in China. The U.S. had a whole lot of additional political problems, which were pretty clear. But public health, the core of public health is the organized efforts of society. So it doesn't matter if you've got great science, if you don't have the organized efforts of society to deliver on what the science is saying, you will also are in trouble. Uh, so it seems both of those areas were the science and the leadership were both seem to be deficient in many countries in the Western world. Joshua, it also seems like, and maybe this is an excuse, but it also seems like there was an overemphasis on what would happen to the U.S. economy and whether or not we could make it if the economy collapsed. Wasn't that sort of the sense at the beginning of we've got to figure out a way to keep moving as a country, even through a pandemic and primarily economically? That's a great point. It goes back to the beginning in March of our federal government's pandemic response. You might recall there was a slow the spread, if you will, federal guidelines not a lockdown, but certainly taking the virus semi-seriously. And one weekend, just one week after that began, I remember seeing a Texan lieutenant governor, Governor Patrick, say, we've got to live with COVID. We can't do this. We, we basically can't. We don't have to slow the spread. That was the political message. We have to stop this because business has to be flowing again. Donald Trump, two weeks or even 10 days into that period said we have to be moving again by Easter. Easter was early April. And remember, this was a crucial time. This was an absolutely crucial time because the ascendancy of the pandemic was underway. Uh, the epicenter was in New York, not so much in Texas, for example, and other places. But we could see, Yanir, of course, could see, but many others as well, could see that this is going to be major. It's not just going to affect New York. Yet our response, the political leaders uh, were saying, we need to get business up and going again. And therefore, we need to relax those measures. And really, subsequent to early April, mid-April, you began to see Georgia, Virginia, Florida, a number of states that had had stay-at-home orders, uh, again, weakly enforced, weakly enforced, but still, they had something. Even those minor measures were given up, again, way too early in the pandemic. And what that led to ultimately is something I already described, that kind of cyclical back and forth semi-lockdown, I call it stop 
start stop policy. So what you saw was with the second wave uh, coming in late June, July, August in states like Texas, where that lieutenant governor had spoken in, in March about the need for business to come back, you saw that there was an incredibly tense moments, if you will, between the governor who was instituting stay-at-home orders, or at least instituting some some measures of suppression of the virus, trying to contain the virus, and all these other political leaders, from mayors to state representatives to congressmen and women, saying, no, 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 we need business to be up and running again. Well, that has been the theme throughout, really, for an entire year in the United States. And what has it led to? It's led to failure, again, on both counts failure on the public health side, failure on the economic side. And really what staggers me, I'm trying to be modest here because I'm not a brilliant mind. However, it staggers me, it it really baffles me that people at the top of policymaking in the United States at the federal and state levels do not understand this rather simple concept that you need to have control of something that is major, impacting healthcare systems, impacting obviously people's lives and livelihood, you need to first control that. Then you can have your business up and going again. You can have it flowing and you can have it flowing in a sustainable way. You're not stopping, starting, stopping, yo-yoing. I'm afraid, by the way, we're now February, what is it, February 8th? I'm afraid we're going to go into another yo-yo in the next couple of weeks. We see states, my state of Massachusetts, Governor Baker is relaxing an already fairly lax policy. He's relaxing that even further because he sees relatively good, quote unquote, numbers. Well, what happens in two weeks when B117, when it becomes more dominant? What we'll likely see is he'll clamp down again. That's not a sensible approach. Going back and forth. In fact, I think that alienates people. I think ultimately people say, oh, we've been doing this for a year. We got to just live with COVID. Well, of course, you're going to feel that way if there's going to be mixed messaging, inconsistent messaging. It is truly mind boggling. Yanir, it feels like we lost the narrative from the very beginning in the United States. Right. I think that the the really key to all of this is understanding that there is an exit. It's the idea that you can do something that will get us out of this that somehow got lost in this discussion. And and, and no exit sharpens the conversation, right? If you say, look, if we do this, we can go back to a pre-COVID conditions. That would be much better. That's what really everyone wants. It requires really two things. One is knowing that you have to go in the opposite direction that you immediately want to go. So we want to go in that direction, but we can't go there. We have to go in the opposite direction first. So we have to do all of the strong actions, the stay-at-home orders, the really making sure that there's very little transmission, making sure that people who are sick or isolated and the contacts are quarantined. We have to do all of that. We have to do it carefully. But if we do that, then it only takes a few weeks. In New Zealand, it took five weeks of a strong lockdown, two weeks of additional. Basically, you can do it in about five weeks. And now we have some additional methods. We can do mass testing. We can do all kinds of things that will help accelerate it. But the point is that at any moment in time, 
over the last year, we could have aimed ourselves for the exit and gotten there. And, and this is the, the crux of the public communication that is missing, because we see that people are not happy about doing restrictions, but they've never been given the idea that they can actually eliminate the problem. And it's that messaging which happened in New Zealand, which happened in Australia, which happened in other countries, which drives the willingness to engage in this shared effort. We did have, of course, good messaging. New York, there was this messaging about we're in this together, we have to do this, and they were able to get the cases down. But then again, there was this lack of recognition that there was an exit. So the second thing that you need is you have to be just patient enough to get to zero. And zero means a number of cases that you can control by the contact tracing that you have, which is really only a few cases. So the challenge is to have everyone be super aware because the last part of it is, you know, there's not that much virus. Do we really have to do stuff, right? That's what everyone thinks. There's not much risk. But the point is, while at that moment, there's not much risk, if you relax early, then you're going to be back to the situation which was untenable. So what you have to do is know what you're doing at the last part, get there, and then declare victory in the appropriate moment, and then you can relax and get back to normal. Because zero is different. A few cases is just different from any other number, and that's where we have safety. So let's bring this back to local just for a second. You mentioned that you're already working in Tucson and starting to work in Phoenix. Public health experts in Arizona have estimated that anywhere between one in 20 people and one in 10 people in this state is shedding virus at this moment. So could we theoretically do a five-week shutdown and get to zero? The main limiting thing is actually the incubation period. If everyone were to self-isolate, and we identified all the cases, then you would be done in two weeks. But that's not realistic. So we have to worry about the fact that people at home infect other people. So basically, the ideal circumstance is two incubation periods and a little bit more, and that's what gives rise to the five weeks. Now, in order to make that work, you have to really focus on the at-home transmission, make sure you identify cases and isolate and quarantine people. And you have to really focus on the essential services because that's what gives rise to the residual decay of this exponential decline. And again, it does depend somewhat on the number of cases that are present. And in Arizona, there's more cases by a lot than there were in New Zealand when they did their lockdown but it's actually only weakly dependent on it, even if you were to do exactly the same thing that happened in New Zealand. It's logarithmically sensitive, so it takes a few more weeks. But even if it takes a few more weeks, you're still talking about a couple of months, and we've been at this for a year. How much longer do we want to do this? And we know the supposed end game of this with the vaccine that people are aiming for is six to 12 months away. And even then it's not clear that that's going to be an end game because of the new variants and because of other challenges of relying on a vaccine instead of taking the strong actions that actually gets us that we know will get us to a zero COVID situation. Michael, we are still in this sort of lumpy, weird mitigation phase, particularly here in Arizona. 
our governing leadership is willing to say to people, it's okay to have bars and restaurants open at 50% capacity because most of the spread is at home. Yes, well, that's not going to work. Again, I think as Yanea is saying, the critical thing is what you're trying to achieve. And with the piece we published in the British Medical Journal, we provided a typology of approaches. And there is a spectrum from the sort of laissez-faire, which is what unfortunately much of the world is now experiencing, through to very tight elimination and exclusion approaches. That's the critical thing. If you don't have a common goal, you're not going to get there. You're going to default to what you're seeing in the US and much of the world at the moment, where the virus is winning. And the difference in philosophy is pretty profound. I mean, if you're going for zero COVID in New Zealand now, it's a national lead item on the news if we have one case in the community, because that means we're going to have to mobilize all of those resources. We can hopefully avoid a lockdown, but that is the item on the all the television channels and in the newspapers, because we understand now that that's what you have to do, that change in thinking. Australia, it's the same. Western Australia, they shut down their main city after one worker in a quarantine facility tested positive. And there's no evidence of further transmission. It's the same in China. They will test a whole city if needed to track down the last asymptomatic contacts. And this is the winning strategy, but you have to be committed to it. And unless you have changed your thinking to embrace that idea, it's going to be very tough. Unfortunately, I think you may have quite a way to go in the US to get to that point. And in fact, you know, the spectrum does really go from mitigation, which is taking the peak off so you don't overwhelm your health system, to suppression, which is, can be very effective. I mean, that is saying, really, we don't want anyone to get this virus because it's harmful, not just from the mortality point of view, but the long COVID consequences, and also that they will transmit to other people. So a very strong suppression. I mean, Australia called it aggressive suppression in some of these states until they realised ultimately, you actually better to go for zero COVID, so complete elimination, because even aggressive suppression means you're still having to sustain a lot more attention than you need. It's still altering business, it's creating uncertainty, which is very corrosive for business. Until you have that change in consciousness, and it has to percolate right through your political leadership and your public health agencies, it's going to be hard for you to achieve zero COVID goal. If you were to offer a lesson based on all of the work and analysis and research that you have done about the U.S. approach to COVID, what would the title of that lesson be? I'm going to ask all three of you to answer this question, but I'm going to start with Joshua. It's a very good question because there are many lessons from this particular pandemic. Well, I think my first message would be is anytime there's a public health crisis, and that doesn't just apply to COVID-19. It applied in the past with other infectious diseases, HIV, for example. I know it's a totally different virus, but still. And as Jenny years mentioned, Ebola. I mean, there are many, many examples. Consistency. Uh, however difficult that is in the United States of America, where we have 50 states, 50 governors, we've got parties that bicker with one another. Still, consistency in messaging, consistency in approach. 
And I, for 11 months now, have argued that there hasn't been. And I think this has truly undermined efforts. And we haven't obviously adopted a zero COVID approach like New Zealand has. But even the so-called approach, in, in quotation marks, that we have adopted was never clearly delineated. And if you don't have an actual plan, I think uh, Michael Baker mentioned that, a common goal towards which we're trying to get, you're not going to obtain those objectives. Just to give you an example with vaccinations, right? Everyone talks about vaccines, and it's a wonderful tool. It's a fantastic tool. However, you're not going to reach your goal of suppressing this virus with vaccines, or it's very unlikely to reach it, and certainly won't do it in an expedited fashion without a lot of morbidity and, and deaths. And so what are we doing here? That has been, to me, the lesson in this pandemic is you need to have a common goal. You need to have consistent approach and consistent messaging in order to achieve that goal. And we just have not done that. And I don't just blame the Trump administration. I think this has politically been a problem on both sides. I think Yanir mentioned New York. New York did a terrible job in early March of last year, 2020. We might recall that Cuomo and, and uh, mayor of New York City downplayed the virus in spite of the warnings from WHO and elsewhere, in spite of the warnings from Italy. We knew what was happening in Italy and somehow it wouldn't happen in the U.S. I remember that. Cuomo said this. Then he changed his tune, thankfully, and I think he did a pretty good job. But in recent weeks, what do we see Cuomo doing? He's reopening di indoor dining. And I know you're in Arizona where it's nice and warm. Well, it's pretty cold here. So everyone has to go indoors to dine. You can't outdoor dine anymore. And that's a terrible idea. I mean, that's an awful idea. Talk about inconsistency. Cuomo has been this example of someone, oh, he approached the pandemic the right way. Well, I don't think he has. I think that is the biggest lesson. If you're going to approach this, have a goal, have a common goal, try to reach it and be consistent. Yanir, what are the lessons that you want to talk about so far in this pandemic? I think in this context, it's really straightforward that you can take action to eliminate an outbreak. There's been a tremendous misconception of the horse leaves the barn. It's not a horse, it's a fire. You can put it out. You just have to know that that's what you need to do and you can do it. And the other point that I would make in terms of what's happening in the U.S., there is this tremendous amplification of conflict within the public. This has happened in multiple countries where people say, hey, you know, people are arguing. They're not going to follow instructions, all this, all that. As someone who's worked in Africa, where tribalism is, was probably invented for, for Africa, I mean, worked on the outbreaks in community level efforts. What's really needed is the clear understanding of what the goal is. And the fact that getting rid of an outbreak is a shared benefit for individuals, for communities. The people that everyone cares about are the people that benefit. Even if there are other people that they don't care about, that's not what's important. And the messaging by the press, has been consistently undermining the ability to do this. If we take the polls that have been done of willingness to take strong action in order to save lives in the US, in all parts of the US, consistently, it's a very high level of support, whether it's 70% or 80% for particular measures or whatever, it's very high. 
So the vast majority of people, even without a clear messaging of the goal, which hasn't happened, is already on board to take action. Emphasizing the disagreement is a disservice and shouldn't be the central part of the dialogue. Instead, everybody should understand that people care about each other and care about going back to a life where they have the opportunity to do the things that they want without fear, and that people are willing to do a lot in order to get there. The challenge is that if they think that the restrictions or the lifestyle changes or whatever are gonna last for years and years, then of course that's a problem. But if it takes a few weeks, it's surely something that many people, if not most people, and we do not have to have, we never get in public health, 100% compliance. And that's not essential in order to be successful. Michael, seems like there's a bit of a consensus. What would your lesson be? I would say that elimination is the optimal approach for managing COVID-19 and other serious emerging pandemic diseases. I mean, there's lots of contributing lessons that you need a fusion of good science and good political leadership for managing a host of health threats. And you also need to invest in public health infrastructure. And we actually know what that means. It's very well described. Actually, I think the United States has got a wonderful description on your national health and human services website. We know what this looks like. It does have critical mass of science expertise. It is very well connected with decision makers and also has regional delivery capacity. And it can do all those critical functions of planning, strategy, development, surveillance, and delivering services and also supported by regulations and laws that allow you to do these things. So this is decades of well-established thinking on how to do this. One of the problems with public health is that if you succeed, nothing happens. And so the people who don't, and this is, I think there'd be economists could also look at A lot of this is classified as a pure public good, of course. I mean, pandemic control actually is the one thing that governments of all political persuasions seem to agree on because the state has to do it because it will never be delivered in sufficient quantity by the market. But there are other factors as well that I think we've seen operating, and that is what are called the commercial determinants of health, that actually public health has been weakened in terms of infrastructure and its political clout. And as a result, commercial interests will frequently fight against controls and also picking up the tab for all the externalities they have because they are very powerful. This is why I guess more right-wing governments don't necessarily prioritise public health enough. So I think we are seeing the political economy operating. What actually happens is not necessarily a product of rationality it's those other processes. How you restore that is actually one of the big challenges because at a technical level, we often have the answers. It's just the political economy is driving us in a different direction as we're seeing around the globe. And ultimately, governments save us or kill us. That's what we see over and over again at a global level. Thank you, Yanir. Thank you, Joshua. And thank you, Michael. Today's conversation is the kind of exposure to different outcomes and paradigm-shifting thinking that requires us to listen, to think, to re-examine the course of COVID in the U.S., to wonder what could have been, 
and to think about what still can be. Of course, this conversation could have gone on for at least another hour. If you find yourself intrigued to learn more, check the show notes. You'll find links to Yanir's endcoronavirus.org website and blog, two key articles from Michael's and New Zealand's experience, and more. One clear reality that emerges from this conversation is that the U.S. didn't respond in a similar fashion to China, New Zealand, Vietnam, and other countries because we simply weren't as ready for this pandemic on a number of experiential, social, political, and economic fronts. But as Yunir said so well, it's not about the horse being out of the barn. COVID is more like a fire. We still can put it out. The Vitalist Spark will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. <laughs>